Let's pray. Lord, that is our prayer that we've sung, that you would take our life, all of it. And I sense, Lord, your spirit working in each of our hearts that, Lord, we really, we mean that and we desperately need your help to do that. Not just now in this moment together where we're strengthened by brothers and sisters who, who love you. But Lord, through this week as we find ourselves going out when life is hard in a lot of difficult places, help us, we pray. And now, Lord, as we come to your word, thanks that it's alive. Will you speak through your spirit to us, our hearts? And we would say, even as your your brother has taught us, that we wouldn't just hear it, but that we would do it today. Grace our lives by your word, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's good to be back, grateful for Tom's ministry of continuing us on in our studies of the book of James and real excited to hear that we we now on staff Craig I don't know if you heard it, but we all get 26 weeks of vacation and that, that's just great I'm excited so I'll see you guys in January it's good to be back um, when um, Lori and I moved into our first house we we moved next to a woman named Beverly and Beverly was quite a character and we grew to love her like one of our own family members. In fact, she didn't have any family members alive, and so we really were like family. Beverly and then our family. And in her later years, as her health declined, we became her guardians and took care of her. And that was our pleasure. And along the way, as she was uh, taking care of her house and the financial areas, she, she gave us some things. And this is one of the things that she gave us, this vase, there's a, a, a matching, this picture, and there's a matching vase that goes with it. And I got to be honest with you, I've never really liked it. I mean, it's just, it's, it's just not my style, but um, we love Beverly, and we have this on our mantle, and everybody except for me is convinced this is really valuable. And we've just been waiting for the Antique Roadshow to show up in the town and to bring it to find out if this is the case. Now, you've seen the show, right? It's a great show. It's a history lesson wrapped in some human dynamics. And they're kind of subtle and sometimes not so subtle. And, and the, usual, the, the usual way it goes is, you know, they, they zoom in on a story and someone walks in like I would with this picture and... And the, the expert asked the, the participant, tell us how you, you received this. And there's all kinds of stories. Sometimes it was handed down through the generations. Sometimes they just picked it up willy-nilly at a garage sale and paid a few cents for it. And then the next scene is the expert telling us about the history of this piece, setting in its historical context. And then what we're all waiting for is, what's it worth? What's it worth? And I mean, we've been blown away, haven't we? And it's funny, isn't it? We're, I'm always looking at the reaction of the person as the expert says, now, if this were to go to auction today. It's like this woman who brought in her mother's um, perfume bottle set. You see it up here on the screen. And it's this great collection, and um, you got both reactions. One of the bottles he picks up, and he says, well, this one's got a little chip on the, on the top here, and, and this one would only garner about $100. Oh, 
But this one here is a René Lalique bottle. Who's René Lalique? I have no idea. Some French guy that did some really good classwork, I guess. Early period Lalique. This is worth thirty to forty thousand dollars if you took it to auction today. What? Thirty to forty thousand. We've had those experiences where we're going. I can't believe it, and they got it for how much at a garage sale? So I, I don't know what that's worth. But my wife says, you better bring it back home in one piece. She's convinced <laughs> it's worth a lot. So I better not I better put it back here so it doesn't get kicked over. Okay, and nobody take that after service. So why the, why the antique roadshow? Because today, James says, I want you to bring something put on the table. I want you to go get your faith. Go get your faith. And I, I want you to bring it to God. He's the expert on faith. And he's going to tell you, what it's worth. And James says in the trials of life, it's really important that as your faith is tested, you understand the true metal of your faith and you understand what genuine faith looks like. Because the scriptures tell us there's a day where people stand before God thinking for sure that they had the real thing only to find out that Jesus says, I don't know you. Jesus talks about this very thing in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 7. Here's what he says in verse 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. And so it is of utmost consequence that we are sure about the value of our faith. Understanding that Jesus says, in the end, a lot of people go to auction. A lot of people will stand before God. And we will be Shocked to find out that what we thought was the real thing wasn't at all. So open your Bibles to James chapter 2. When we get to verse 14, we keep running into Word. When you're reading the Word of God every day, one of the things you want to do is look for repetition. And when you read through verses 14 through 26, that would be on page 855 if you need to use the Bible in the racks in front of you. When you read through these 13 verses, you run into the word faith 11 times. That kind of gives us an idea. Maybe this is about faith. Yeah, it's about faith, real faith. There's another word, though, that you run into. You don't quite see it in our translation, the NIV, but if you're working through in the original language, you would see this root word. It's the word for work or works. That shows up nine times. And you notice that on Either side of 14 through 26, you've got words about judgment. So look at verse 13, and you'll see about judgment. What does he say in verse 13? He says, Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who's not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So we're just noting the context right before James has been talking about judgment. And now look at 3.1. Not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. So James is 
talking to a group of people who are going through tough times, right? They're scattered. Remember why they're scattered? Because they're Christians. They're followers of Christ. And they, they, aren't, they, they aren't popular with the people. They've had to flee for their lives. They're being persecuted. They're in trial. Tough times. And he says, in the midst of trial, expect for your faith to be tested. And understand that it's not just important today in the midst of the trial, but it's important for eternity as you face judgment. So James says, bring your faith up. Bring your faith up. Let's see if it's the real thing. Because it really doesn't matter what we think. I mean, you can go to the Antique Roadshow and have all kinds of notions. That's, I mean, maybe it is. Maybe it's 20,000. Man, if it is, we better get there soon. Maybe that's a 20,000, but it doesn't really matter what I think it's worth. It's what the expert thinks. It's not about what we think about our faith. It's not about what I think about your faith. It's what does God say about the nature of the real faith, of real, genuine faith. So what he does here is very interesting. In these 13 verses, he begins by just pointing out Two negative illustrations of what genuine faith is not. Or in a way we could say, you know your faith is worthless when it's... And he gives two illustrations. And then he says, here's what it looks like. And he gives two final illustrations that are positive. So let's start in verse 14 through 17. James says, what good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds, no works... Can such faith save him? Now, in the Greek, you can actually ask a question that anticipates the answer, and the answer anticipated here is no. That kind of faith will not save you. Save you from what? What's the context? Judgment. Can that faith stand up before the judgment seat of God? No, it can't. Suppose, he says, a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, Go, I wish you well, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about his physical needs. What good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. So he says, you know your faith is worthless when you have a brother or sister in need and you're unwilling to meet the need. You blow it off with these fancy platitudes that sound really spiritual. It'd be like somebody coming in and and you know that their home was devastated by the recent flooding. And you go, man, I feel so bad. How are you doing? Oh, you're not in your house. Oh, man, I'm so sorry. The insurance company, oh, you don't have flood insurance. Oh, man, I feel, you know what, I'm praying for you. And, and you dress it up and, and all these things, and you might even throw in a, man, I once had a flood in my basement. I mean, it wasn't as bad as yours, but I kind of know how you feel. No, we don't. And, and we, we, we bring on these platitudes, and it sounds like it's real spiritual. But our, our faith doesn't move out loving our neighbor at their point of need. James says, you'll know your faith is worthless when you have a brother or sister in need, and you don't do anything about it. 
And I think when James is talking about a brother or sister in need, I don't think we need to draw it so tight that that we don't include, it could be a neighbor, it could be a family member who's not part of this church. It's the people that come into our lives and we know they have need and we're not willing to sacrifice to meet the need. James says, "Then, then your faith won't save you. That's not what saving faith looks like. Faith works, James says. And it works out in our relationships with each other. Then he goes on. He gives another negative illustration. But someone will say, he's anticipating a, a kind of a, a response here by someone. And here's what they'll say. You have faith, I have deeds. So, somehow they're, they're splitting the two. You, you, you can't have one or the other. You don't need them both. Now James interjects, show me your faith without deeds. And I'll show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God? This is faith without works. Now he's saying, you you believe there is one God? A key cardinal doctrine of the faith? The unity of God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. And so what's he saying here? James is saying, you know your faith is worthless not only when We don't love our neighbor at their point of need. But when we say we believe in God, but we don't love God. Because Jesus says, if you love me, you'll do what? What does he say? You keep my commands. You'll obey me. So the demons believe that God is one. Now, that teaching is rooted in the Shema. This was the great command. It's the command Jesus says summarizes the whole law. And it starts in Deuteronomy 6.4 with, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then it says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So it's interesting he picked that verse. Because tied up with that verse of believing that God is one is loving him with all your heart. And he says, to this supposed person who thinks we can separate our faith from how we live out our lives, he says, look, even the demons believe that God is one, but they don't love him. They don't serve him. They don't obey him. So James says, put your faith on the table and understand this, that if it's the real deal, it's going to work out in our relationships with people in need, starting right here in the family of God. And it's going to work out in our relationship with God where we're obeying him, showing our love for him. So he goes on, and he says in verse 20, You foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? So he's anticipating this this dialogue, this interchange with the the people that he's writing to. And when the Bible uses the word foolish, don't ever think the equivalent is, you stupid guy, you dummy. No, it's a lot stronger than that. When you start chasing the word fool in the Old Testament, especially in wisdom literature, you realize a fool is not just a stupid person. It's a wicked person. He says, this kind of thinking that you could separate Belief in God and action is wicked. But he anticipates that they doubt what he's saying. He says, 
You want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? All right, I'll give you evidence. And he calls up Father Abraham, the father of the faith. And he says, let's talk about Abraham. Look at verse 21. Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together. Oh, that's an important little phrase. James would have us underline that. They were working together. And his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. So I don't know if you know the story of Abraham. But Abraham is a guy who meets God. He's an, he's a, an idol worshiper. And God meets him and says, I want you to go to this land I'm going to show you. And Abraham takes God at his word. And he starts to go. And then a couple of chapters later, God meets him again and says, Abraham, I want to bless you. And I'm going to bless all the families of the world through you. What I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a son. I know you're an old man, but I'm going to give you a son. And I know your wife, Sarah. She's an old woman, and she's going to give you a son. And verse 6 of chapter 15 of Genesis, Abraham believed the promise. And right there, he was considered righteous because of his faith. His faith was trusting in the promise of God, taking God at his word. But he said his faith, James says his faith was made complete. The scripture was fulfilled when it says, and God recognized his faith. And it was fulfilled a few chapters later. When after many years, over 20 years, they finally give birth to a son. His name is Isaac. Isaac grows up and God says to Abraham one day, I want you to take Isaac up on the mountain. And I want you to offer him as a sacrifice to me. Now, I I don't know what you would have done. But I I think if I would have had that vision in the middle of the night, I'd have woke up the next morning and go, well, that was a bad dream. That was a really bad dream. I thought God was telling me to do something I know he wouldn't tell me to do because he's already told me this son is a son of promise and of blessing and it's going to be through him that I'm going to have descendants that outnumber the stars of the heaven and the sand of the seashore. So that couldn't have been God. I don't know where that thing came from. But you know what the scriptures tell us? Abraham knew the voice of God and he gets up that next morning and he's saddling up the donkeys. He's calling the servants, getting the supplies, telling Isaac to get up. It's time to go. I don't know where, but we're going to the mountain that God's going to show. And they go for three days, and he takes God at his word in a radical way, even when the promise seemed to be in collision with the command. And yet the scriptures give us an insight on Abraham's faith. We read about it a couple chapters before this in Hebrews eleven seventeen. It says this about Abraham's faith at this point of where his faith is tested. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. 
He who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned. Here's what he reasoned. That God could raise the dead. And figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. He figured this. If God is asking me to do something that seems unbelievable, seems completely in conflict with the promise that he's given me, then it must mean he'd raise him up from the dead. And that's not just the writer of Hebrews' take on it. When you read the account of Genesis 22, the very last thing that Abram says to his servants when he and Isaac are about to leave them and go off on their own up to the mountain, he says, we're going up to the mountain and we're coming back. So just stay here. We're coming back. So, James says, you want to know why faith and works have to go together as we understand what the true nature of saving faith is? Is just remember how it worked out in Abraham's life. And then all of a sudden we realize, whoa, what it means to love God with all of our heart means not only that, I, that I'm trusting in his promise, that I'm obeying his command, but I'm holding nothing back. I mean, this is his, this is his son of the promise. This is, this is his beloved Isaac that he's willing to give. He held nothing back. And I wonder, as we put our faith before God, and God asks us, are you holding anything back, Mark? You holding anything back, friend, from me? The radical nature of saving faith is that we love God to the point of obeying Him, holding nothing back from Him. Well, there's a lot of things we can hang on to. Faith is holding nothing back before God. Then he tells us about Rahab. Now, you talk about a completely different kind of example from the father of the faith to a Canaanite prostitute. Wow. James. Well, here he goes in verse 25. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Maybe you don't know about the story of Rahab. Rahab lived in this city called Jericho. You may have heard Jericho. The wall's falling down in Jericho. That's that Jericho. Spies are sent by Moses to scout out this promised land that God promised to Abraham. They go in. They go into this hugely fortified city named Jericho, and they find themselves on the run because the authorities think they've spotted some spies coming into town. And they go and find Rahab, and Rahab hides them, and she lies about their whereabouts. The Bible never condones that. It saves her life. And we know from the text in Joshua chapter 2 that she and the people of Jericho know all about the recent history of what God has done when he sent them out of Egypt in a miraculous fashion. Parting the Red Sea, conquering Pharaoh's army. And she says of her own heart and the hearts of her people, when we heard about it, our hearts melted in fear. And she says to the spies, I know that your God is the God of heaven and the God of earth. And so James is not showing us that there is a a way that one is saved by our works because the text is clear. 
Rahab believes in God. But what she does is another side to the real thing. It's the antithesis of the hypothetical situation of the brother or sister in need, destitute, and all we bring is platitudes. Rahab shows us genuine faith loves a neighbor at their point of need. Now, I don't know how it's going for you, but we've been talking about trials. And what I know is that this week there's been a lot of trials going on in the life of our church. One of our families buried their 25-year-old son. Some of our people got the proverbial pink slip. It's game over at work. There's been difficult situations with our kids, some of our grown kids. There's been health complications. There's been the devastating news of a diagnosis and more. Our our vacation ended on a real bummer. We had a great week in Colorado and then had a great time up at the cabin in Door County with uh, Lori's sister and her family. And then on Thursday morning, we're just kind of packing up, getting things together. And um, I had some errands to run into town, and so I, I was throwing some things in the back seat of the car, and then I got in the car, and, and I was backing up, and to my horror, I heard the, the yelping of our little Karen Terrier, who I just ran over. This was um, our oldest daughter who wasn't with us at the time. She's down in Wheaton, the one holding the dog. That's Laura's dog. She researched this dog for a year, then saved up all of her money, got this dog from a breeder in La Crosse. And we love this little dog, Tiger. So we've never had a little dog. We've always had big labs and wasn't a little dog guy. And this is a great little dog with this big heart. And here I've run over little Tigress at the end of our vacation. Reach down, I gather up in my arms, and Lori and Sarah come running out of the cabin, and we just can't believe what's happened. So Lori and I jump and rush her to the vet. The vet's just going into surgery. Sorry, we can't help you. And so we decide we're just about packed up. Let's let's just go home. Let's just go home. Never a whimper. She she was looking pretty good. The leg was definitely broken. You could see that. Didn't see any signs of bleeding, or maybe there's not internal injuries. And the longer we went, the more optimistic I got. I think she's going to be, maybe she's going to make it. And I'm, I'm willing to pay out the big bucks to fix this dog, right? Because, I mean, I'm feeling terrible. We get to Cottage Grove, drop Lori off to the vet. Lori, uh, the kids and I go home. I unload the car, and I'm on my way back, and Lori calls. And I could tell by the tone of her voice it wasn't good. She says, you need to come, and you need to bring the kids. And so there we were. All six of us, Lori wasn't there, but all six of us packed in this little examining room, just bawling our eyes out. Realized that she's got so many broken bones and spinal injury that we had to put her down. And here's what I can tell you. As the guy who's been preaching on James, my first thought was not considered all joy. I, I, was, I was having serious conversations with God. God, why didn't you let me see her? 
why, why didn't you wake her up? I mean, I was slamming car doors before I ever got in and started the car. God, why'd you let this happen at the end of a great vacation? I wasn't counting it all joy. I wasn't praying for wisdom. I was just hurting, and there was a lot of feelings and trying to sort it out. And I realize that in this trial, my faith is showing. It's showing. And as I look back on it, I don't like exactly how it was showing right at first, but that's where I was. And I think that's pretty true to most of us in a storm. And I realize this storm doesn't even compare to half the storms that broke out this past week. And then I was thinking about the Chapman family and that illustration I used a few weeks ago about the teenage son who backed up over his sweet little girl and I thought of the difference of holding your puppy who we love so much and holding your own child. And then I thought about Jesus. I thought about Jesus who was sent down to this earth and when you read the gospels as I was chasing it through this week you can never find a verse that says Jesus believed in God Jesus trusted you don't see that I didn't see it anywhere I looked for Jesus in faith Jesus in belief but it was evident that he did because he always obeyed the father and showed his love for God and he like no one else lay down his life, not just for his friends, but for his enemies. He perfectly loved God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and perfectly all the time loved his neighbor as himself. And he came down to die as the perfect sacrifice, and he died, I don't know if you know this, he died in the very place where Abraham was asked to bring Isaac up on the altar. God provided a ram so that Isaac wouldn't have to be killed that day. And that was all pointing ahead to God's great gift of his son. And friends, maybe you've got your faith out here in an objective way and God's saying, you've been trusting in the wrong thing. You've been trusting in yourself. You've been trusting in your own good works and your good works aren't good enough. You haven't perfectly loved God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You haven't given him everything like Christ has. You haven't loved your neighbor as yourself. You've got to trust in Christ alone. And the scriptures say, this is a gift that we can receive. It's not something we have to muster up. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 is a great text. And verse 10 follows up on just exactly what James has been talking about. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. And this, the grace, your salvation, your faith, is not from yourself. It's not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, freely given to people who are unworthy, to people who ask, God, give it to me. Be gracious to me. It's not by works so that no one can boast. And if we have been gifted with that faith, then what happens is verse 10. We become God's workmanship, creating Christ Jesus, and we do the good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. James and Paul are not in conflict here, saying two different things. Where Paul's saying, you're saved by faith alone, and James is saying, you're saved by works alone. No way. James has never talked about works alone. He said faith plus works. What did he say? 
Just as the body without the spirit is dead, and we see that when we go to a visitation and the spirit is no longer in the corpse, and we go, they're not here. They're dead. So too faith without works is dead. Paul is making sure that none of us think that we could save ourselves by doing good things. And James is having us be certain that we never delude ourselves into thinking all we need to do is believe. It doesn't matter how we live. We're in. Here's a way to put it. We're saved by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. Saving faith is focused on Christ and then is animated by the love of Christ to God and to those in need. And if you're not called the friend of God as Abraham was because of faith, that can happen today. And if you're not the friend of God, the Bible's answer is, it's not that you're neutral, but that you're under God's wrath. You're you're an enemy of God. And that's where we've all been. But you don't have to stay there anymore. You can become the friend of God as you trust in what Christ did for you. God, forgive me. I believe Jesus died for me. Make me new. Give me a new heart that I love you and love others as I know you've called me to. And then for those of us who've done that and we come to this point where we go, boy, you asked me to put my faith up on the table and I'm going, I know this week I haven't loved God like that and I know I haven't loved my neighbor as myself and, 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 I've, and I've done the platitude things this week because I was busy Or I was scared about what am I getting into here with this needy person. What do we do? We keep falling back on Christ, trusting the one, trusting the one who always did it right, asking for forgiveness, asking for greater measure of his spirit, encouraging each other to spur each other on to do love, to love and to do good deeds. God, help us to know what God thinks about our faith today. God, help us to grow our faith because what James is telling us, I think is pretty clear. In the midst of a trial, it's going to be so easy to become self-absorbed like I was that I no longer love God with all my heart and I don't have time to take care of any of your needs because I'm so into my trial. So God help us as we wrestle through hard times to persevere in this kind of a faith, a faith that works. Let's pray. Dear God, grant us faith. Lord, for someone who never considered that they could be called the friend of God, but their hearts being tugged by you, You say in your word, faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. They've heard your word. Would you gift them with faith to trust in your son alone? And would you gift us with a dynamic faith, a faith that's never alone, a faith that's always doing what we've been created to do, the good works of loving you and loving others until you come. Lord, this week, you're going to put us in the path of someone in need. Keep us from platitudes. Lord, this week, you're going to remind us again of the promises we can claim, the commands that we need to obey 
and your desire for us to not withhold anything from you. May this kind of faith grow in this place, in our hearts, and may it grace this family, our community, and the world. In Jesus' name, amen.